Hello and welcome to another episode of Travel with a Chance of Murder, the travel and true crime podcast where we take you through the tips and tricks of visiting destinations around the globe and follow it up with a true crime tale to try and scare you away a little bit. I'm Cassidy and I'll be your spooktacular storyteller, the host that walks you through each city or country's terrifying tale of true crime. On the other end of the mic, we have Allie, our travel guru, who takes us off of the bean path and helps us explore things we've never heard of, but definitely need to experience. Welcome back to another episode of Travel with a Chance of Murder. This is Cassidy, one of your co-hosts. We've been on a bit of a hiatus, Alice, so we'll be publishing a little more sporadically, but I'm excited to be back covering Nicaragua today with one of our fan favorites. Please welcome back to the podcast, Kennedy. Hello, it's good to be back. So happy to have you again to cover another place that you've been down in South America. Yeah, this is another one of my favorite places that I've traveled to. I was there for a week in 2014 on a school trip. And so I stayed with a host family and I attended a school in Granada, Nicaragua and traveled around and stuff. And then I did a week in Costa Rica after that. I talked a little bit about my trip because in episode two, we covered Paris and I did the French trip. Our school's really random. Our high school gives us the opportunity to actually go to some of the places that speak the language. So I went to France because I studied French, but Kennedy went to somewhere that spoke Spanish down in South America. Yeah, and so um, that was cool. We had a really good group while we were there. The I think Nicaragua was my favorite between the two, between Nicaragua and Costa Rica. And our listeners already got the, the treat of going through Costa Rica. So this is kind of a fun part two to kind of cover the second half of what you guys explored on that trip. So we're shaking things up a little bit. Kennedy's going to go through some of the top things that he did on his trip. And then, of course, we got some crime. We got a little chance of murder for you. But he actually has his own story to, to scare you off with as well. So... It'll be fun for me to hear a story for, for a change. Yeah, to- so, so I flew to Managua, and then we drove from there to Granada. And I stayed with six people in a house um, where we had like half of it covered. And then the other half of the house, the roof was open. And so like if it rained, it rained inside <laughs> and outside, which I thought was awesome because everything was made of tile and all that. So it wasn't like ruining anything, but it was a cool way just to like see a house. I'd never stayed anywhere like that. And I had this awesome host family who would cook me meals like um, Indio Viejo, which is just rice, beans, meats, and uh, fried plantains. So I was having this super fun experience with them and then also going to a little school to work on Spanish grammar and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, cool. So you still had Um, school. (laughs) I don't know if I knew that. Yeah, so I had to wake up every morning um, and go to school. I think we started at eight. And so I was staying with that host family with a friend of mine named Zach. We were there together. And then Taryn, another one of our friends in the group, um, was staying on like the other side of the little neighborhood that we were in. And so every morning we would wake up, go to Taryn's house, and then the three of us would walk together to school. And so we kind of learned as we went. And so we, we all had to go buy watches the first day so that we would be on time for school each morning because they don't really have alarm clocks or anything like that. And so I didn't know that a 
lot of the stuff down there was fake and they just sold it trying to like brand stuff on their own. And so I bought a watch for $3 that said G-Shock and was amazed that I got a $3 G-Shock and was kind of like bragging about it to everybody in the group. And then Zach told me that it wasn't actually a G-Shock. It just had the letters G-Shock written on it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of little stuff like that where it's kind of each day we learned more and more about where we were actually staying. And so then we also like found a stray dog they would just follow us to school and we we like pet it once and I guess you're not supposed to pet stray dogs there so we just pet it once and it fell in love with us and it would follow us back and forth to school every day I think those are some of the most special trips like yeah it's really awesome to travel and just get to do different things but when you're able to do those unique experiences where you're really immersed like that where you're actually living with a family you're in the heart of like a town where probably doesn't have a ton of cars. They're literally walking to school. Yeah, there were there were almost no cars in the neighborhoods where we were staying. And if they did come from one direction or another, it was like there was room in the road for one of them to pass in one direction. So definitely not like lanes of traffic or anything like that, just kind of dirt roads that we were walking up and down. And then also another thing is that absolutely nobody in Granada spoke English um, in terms of like the local people and all of that. So for getting around, you couldn't really rely on your English at all. You you had to figure it out in Spanish, which I thought was really cool. So we found a lot of roundabout ways to communicate with people, um, which was also a lot of fun. Have you seen some of those shirts that people will wear when they're traveling and it has like the icons so that they can just like point to what they're looking for? No, but that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're cool. What, but- what kind of icons do they have? Like bathroom and food and stuff like that? Yeah, like airplane and like food, like bathroom. Dang, I might get one of those. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely useful for when you're getting around. But that's cool that you really like had to figure out how to communicate. Yeah, and I had taken um, five years of Spanish by the time I went there. And so I was, I was okay at speaking Spanish, but it's a lot different when it's only Spanish all the time. And so by the end of the trip it was really cool because we were able to go to markets and stuff where you would um kind of haggle the price and um barter with people and by the end of it we were able to actually go and like do that kind of thing in the markets successfully which was cool uh we love a good market on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) and then um just one other thing i was going to share about my trip there was while we were in granada we ran into a a poet. He was he was a homeless man who was living on the street, like the happiest guy around. And he would sit on the ground and um, recite poetry to anybody who was walking by. And so I asked him before I left Granada to write down one of his poems for me, and he did. And um, what's cool is before this podcast, I went on YouTube and I searched for him, and I found a video of him in Granada reciting his poetry. And so if people want to go check that out, um, the title of the video is Poet slash Street Artist John Oliver, Granada, Nicaragua. And it will be him reciting the poem that he wrote down for me. Is it in English or Spanish? Yeah, he spoke English. Uh, He's like, I know I said nobody spoke English, but uh, he did speak English. I think he was from uh, the Cayman Islands or something like that. Okay. And he knew English and Spanish and... um, one other, one other language. Is Cajun a language? 
Cajun's like the type of cuisine. I think Creole is the, the name of the language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Because I've eaten foods that are Cajun, like Cajun. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Creole, <laughs> Creole is what I was thinking of. Well, we'll have to give them a watch. Yeah. But that was uh, my own personal experience in uh, Nicaragua. And I, I really, really enjoyed being there. I think you're holding out on us, didn't you? You were telling me something about sharks. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we would go to school. And then when school was over, that's when we would load up into a bus and drive to different places um, in the country. We are right near Lake Nicaragua, which is a massive freshwater lake. I think it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest in the world. And so there's a volcano and there's islands and all this kind of cool stuff. But there are also freshwater sharks in the lake. And I didn't even know that, that was possible until I went to Nicaragua. I, yeah, that's interesting. That's definitely what I picture, though. When I think of South America, I think of like lush rainforest and like tropical swimming oasis. Yeah, there's yeah, we are surrounded by jungle and all that kind of stuff. And at the lake, you would see there are all these like one acre islands where the wealthier people had built houses. Um, and so it was like a plot of land acting as an island where there was only enough room for a house. And then you'd see monkeys swim out to the islands and they'd just be like on top of the roofs of the houses and swimming back and forth from house to house. And that was really cool too. <laughs> That's so cool. Monkeys just hanging out. But I thought, I thought the, the freshwater lake was one of the coolest parts of my trip because um, I always joke around about lake sharks <laughs> as if it's some you know, obvious thing that they don't exist. But uh, once we went down there, yeah, I found out that they were real. <laughs> Gotta watch out for those lake sharks. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing your experience with us. So um, what sort of unsolved crime or mysteries have you dug up in Nicaragua? Uh, I actually stumbled across a international ghost hunters episode that covered Nicaragua. And I was going to do one of the places they went to, but it was like, I started to watch the episode and I got too scared within, I think five minutes of watching it. They had like satanic rituals at this old <laughs> prison that was like a prison for political prisoners. So I was like, okay, we're in a pivot away from paranormal. We're going to go back to true crime. And I ended up deciding to cover the murder of Doris Jimenez and the trial of Eric Voles. Did I say her last name right? Uh, you can say it with an H. Different countries pronounce it differently, but like the J can typically act as an H, so you'd say Jimenez. Okay. I'm very bad when I try and pronounce things from the other languages, so that, I apologize. That's okay. It was, it was definitely <laughs> close enough to pass. Excellent. This one's one of the more recent cases that I've covered, which always makes me extra nervous because I'm like, oh, it's a little more current. You know, people might still have it in their minds. So I'm, I hope all the details are accurate, but bear with me. Like, I think I did a good job, but I'm just extra nervous when I do these kind of stories. I get really nervous before recording anything too. Okay. So travel with me to 2004. This story is mostly from Eric's point of view. So we'll talk about Eric. Eric Voles, he moves to Nicaragua from California. He moves to kind of just hang out, have a good time, enjoy and travel. But while he's in South America, he actually founds this magazine called EP Magazine. It is a bilingual magazine. So it covers English and Spanish. It's centered about Central America. 
And so while he's doing his traveling, while he's doing the magazine publications, he meets Doris Jimenez, and then they begin dating. She's from a very small town in the area, but she's known to be very beautiful, but she kind of grew up from a poor family. So people kind of looked at her a little odd that she's now dating, you know, this white guy who came into town as a foreigner, they're getting a little bit of side eye. Being from a very poor family, she lived in a small house with her mom and her aunt and cousins. So it was a very small living arrangement with a lot of people. So she moves in with Eric pretty quickly. Eric tries to communicate with her as best as he can. It's not going to be like he doesn't view their relationship as long term. He's kind of just there to hang out, travel. You know, he starts to run this own business, but soon the business kind of takes off. So he decides that he's going to move to the capital of Nicaragua from where he's living with um, Doris. But before he moves, he helps Doris set up her own business. So she starts to run a fashion boutique um, in the streets of San Juan. So on top San Juan of, del Sur. Uh, it probably is. It's a very busy street in San Juan. I think, I think that's uh, uh, one of the places we drove through also. Yeah, I, I would imagine you might have been here. It's like kind of a very like busy shopping area in the country. So if people weren't talking before that she's dating this guy and, you know, moved in with him quite quickly, they're sure talking now because now he's helped her set up a business, you know, and is kind of starting to be successful on her own. They end up breaking up. He moves two and a half hours away from there, but she continues to run this business that he helped her set up and they kind of continue their friendship. But on November 21st of 2006, Eric gets a phone call that Doris had been found dead in the boutique. So he rushes back to San Juan to see her family and her friends. And inside the shop, it is the stuff of nightmares. It's a very grisly crime scene. I feel like the story was going so well up until that point. Yeah. You know, you're like young, happy, love, profitable businesses, making a name for themselves. Yeah. Things aren't going to work out, but we'll stay friends. (laughs) Yeah, very admirable. But then Doris is roughly, like, very terribly murdered. The store's ransacked. It's robbed. There's signs of a struggle in the shop. And police find Doris's body tied up. There's defensive marks on her knuckles, on her forearms, on her lip. She really put up a, a fight. Damn. But the cause of death is ruled as asphyxiation. The initial reports decide that it is a robbery gone wrong. Yeah, that's a lot to go through for a robbery. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense that it it goes like the struggle went back into the living area and into the bedroom, which is what's weird to me. Like if you were just trying to rob her, I feel like you could have snuck in and out and that you wouldn't have found her like in the back area. You would have found her more in the shop if they were struggling to steal like money or something. Yeah, just kind of like, taken what you wanted and then left yeah four men were initially charged with the murder julio martin chamorro nelson lopez dangles armando ianez witzel and our main character eric volts and this is where police kind of start to focus in on eric they switch their thinking that okay maybe this isn't a robbery maybe it's actually like a crime of passion it was talked about that Doris had started to see someone new so maybe Eric had 
heard that she had a new man in her life, didn't like that, came and killed her out of like this jealous rage. Yeah. But Eric wasn't known to be a jealous guy. And Doris's boyfriend at the time was actually never taken into custody. And he was removed from the list of suspects. So the new guy was removed from the list, but the ex-boyfriend was still... Yeah, but ex-boyfriend is suspect number one, basically. Oh, that's weird. Mm -hmm. I feel like she could have, you know, done something to make the first guy or the the current boyfriend angry more likely than like her ex-boyfriend. Yeah, there are some rumors that maybe the current boyfriend, his family had some ties with police and um, high government in Nicaragua. So maybe that's why he got his name kind of off the list so quickly. Mm, Yeah. Eric's arrested and charged with the murder of Doris on November 23rd of 2006, based off of a couple statements from other suspects. The media begins sensationalizing the stories. You know how media can kind of take a story and run with it. So they start talking about how Eric's violent, that he's jealous, that he's murderous, he's a foreigner. They really emphasize the fact that, you know, he's not from the country. He's not one of us. He's the other almost. Doris's mother told media and testified on trial that Eric's family tried to bribe her with a million dollars to drop the charges, but it was later revealed that the offer was actually made by the attorney of one of the other suspects, which is weird. I don't know. There's lots of weird different weaving threads to this case. Eric wanted all charges dropped, like case closed. (laughs) It was rumored that his family had, like, approached her, her mom to offer her money to drop the case. Oh, dang. But they, pro- they proved that what didn't happen. But media worked the public so high up as the trial approached that there were cars with loudspeakers that drove through the city that blared on the loudspeaker, bring justice to the gringo. There was a mob of angry Nicaraguans that rioted with police in the streets in front of the courthouse. They threatened to kill Eric if he came out. And on one occasion where I think they were moving Eric, a U.S. embassy official was actually assaulted. And Eric barely escaped with his life in the altercation. Dang. Yeah, I mean, you would definitely stick out like a sore thumb if you're down there and you're the, the only white guy. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, a case where it's just kind of blown it's like the story that everyone's talking about yeah yeah so at the trial the prosecutor is describing eric as very controlling he's calling on doris's friends and relatives to testify about how eric and doris's relationship was where they claim doris found herself trying to escape the relationship they believed that the mystery intruder was eric checking up on doris being really jealous Investigators determined that Doris was murdered in broad daylight around 1230 in the afternoon on November 21st, and a witness of the prosecutor testified in court that he saw Eric near Doris's store at that time. Eric lived in a different city, right? And so he would have been like visiting Doris if he had gone to her shop at 1230. Yeah, he would. I mean, he would have had to make the two and a half hour trip into the city if he was visiting Doris. So the case kind of has two different stories. The prosecutor's arguing that Eric was there. And then I'll kind of dive into what Eric says he was up to that day. But the testimony says that Eric was there at 10 a.m. He was in a white car. He was carrying some clothes from the car to the shop. He got in the car and then drove 
in the direction of the city that he lives in. It's called Managua, Managua. Managua. That's the one. (laughs) And then the prosecutor dived into the physical evidence. So there's also some images of Eric's shoulder. He had these big red markings on his shoulder that could have corresponded with like self-defense injuries that um, Doris would have done against her attacker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's weird that both of them have uh, like marking, like two of the suspects, including Eric, have markings on them that would suggest like Doris defending herself against them. He had called to apparently rent a car around 1 to 1.30, but in his testimony, he had said that he had heard about Doris's death on that phone call from a friend around 2.45. So he would have been calling to rent a car before he would have heard about her death in his testimony. Mm. So there's a mixture of some physical evidence and circumstantial evidence. But moving on to the defense. So Eric's family hired a very good lawyer. They hired the guy who actually defended Nicaraguan president Daniel Ortega at one point. So he he knew what he was doing. He knows the law pretty well. Yeah. And this is Eric's around the block. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Eric testifies that his housemaid woke him up at 9 a.m. And then after being woken up, he heads straight into the office and Eric presents some phone records. So he shows to the court that he was on a international conference call from 12 o'clock to two o'clock. And he presents forensic data that shows instant messages that were timestamped on his computer to his business associates throughout the day. He shows cell phone records that, you know, in all the like crazy crime shows, they try triangulate like telephone records. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So he like shows that kind of data that he was in the office and like a credit card voucher that he was in the area of Managua. <laughs> I'm so scared to say the name. Yeah, Managua. <laughs> Managua. And lastly, there were 10 people who were in the office with Eric that day. And one of them was actually a really respected Nicaraguan journalist. But in trial, the judge only allowed for three of those people to testify because he thought that the rest of them would be willing to lie for Eric. And the judge throws out the phone records and the instant messages saying it just shows that the calls were made, but not who made them. It could have been someone else like using Eric's phone. Dang. That's a lot of evidence to throw out the window. Mm -hmm. But because this guy's a pretty good lawyer, he also brings up some reasonable doubt for the scratches on Eric's shoulder. So Eric was actually a, Pole, Paul Bear, Paul Bear at um, her funeral. So at Dolores's funeral, he helped to carry her casket. And the scratches on his shoulder are actually consistent with that. If he was carrying a casket, um, you could see that like it would slide a little bit and then he'd readjust the casket. And that's why there were a couple of different lines on his shoulder. Oh, yeah. that I mean, that makes sense to me. That's crazy that... Um... You know, he would, if he was innocent, if he actually was a pallbearer at her funeral, and then that's what got him convicted of, of uh, the murder. Yeah, that would be absolutely wild. This trial had gotten so much publicity, and it only lasted three days for the jury to make a decision. Jeez. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's way different than what I was expecting. I thought this would be like a long, drawn-out process. Mm-hmm. 
It's crazy. So the judge decided that Eric was guilty and sentenced him to a 30 year sentence, which is the maximum sentence you can get in Nicaragua. There's no death penalty. So 30 years is basically the highest that you can get. And yeah, he basically went to prison and his lawyer began to challenge the conviction Um, in the United States. His family and friends made a campaign for his release. They started to sell t-shirts and all kinds of things to spread word of, you know, what they think is his unjust conviction. Yeah, that's, that's pretty insane. So, I mean, he could have served, I I don't know how long he served the sentence, but 30 years for something he didn't even do. Yeah, he ended up serving a year. So just over a year in prison on December 17th of 2007, the court overturned his conviction and he was released. Wow. Yeah, well, it's different. It's crazy to see how different like their legal system must be compared to ours. If you have that kind of decision in three days based off of like that sort of evidence. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's sad too is the judges that actually overturned the case and declared his innocence had their lives threatened because they had reached the conclusion or basically said, no, he, he's good to go. He's clear to walk free. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, corruption and that kind of stuff in the Nicaraguan government. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if they had said like, you know, he's innocent, we need to look for somebody else if they had had their lives threatened. On the subject of like government and their involvement, the Nicaraguan president had publicly like condemned the release. He's, he like made a statement about how it shouldn't be happening or whatever, despite the fact that he signed the deportation order. Like he signed the forms that said Eric could go back to America. (laughs) So yeah, it's just one of those. What I think is cool, though, is Eric now works um, for an international crisis firm that specializes in solving political and legal problems overseas. Oh, that's cool. And is it like specifically targeted at wrongful convictions? I don't necessarily think it's wrongful convictions, but he kind of just helps people who were overseas and got convicted of something. Gotcha. Yeah. that's actually, that's one of the things, like my dad, when he was in college, um, went to Spain for two years and, um, and then he like came back. So when I was going to Nicaragua, he told me like very straightforwardly, if you get in trouble in another country, like there's not a whole lot that can be done in terms of like our government and all that kind of stuff. And it's not like I was going to go and do anything bad, but, um, he was just saying like, you know, be really careful about what you're doing in terms of the law because if you get if you get arrested for something over there like you are over there (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw it um but there was a girl who went to I want to say the Bahamas her boyfriend was like racing in the Bahamas on like jet skis and she didn't do their quarantine like she was shown I don't know yeah at the race isn't that crazy and she was convicted I think she was supposed to do three months or something like that and then she ended up serving a month and then came home I'm pretty sure uh I I would almost say definitely she served a month and then came home but I think her original one was three months and it's just yeah it's it's crazy to think about that you could go somewhere you know thinking you're going to be back in a week and then end up in prison for a month 
Yeah, without a way to get out. And I think the saddest thing about this case specifically is so much efforts and resources were spent trying to convict Eric that, you know, I don't think her case is solved. I think it's still technically a cold case. Yeah, I think so too. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. But yeah, that's the wild tale. Well, I'm glad that he only served a year out of the 30 year sentence. Yeah, I hope he didn't pay that lawyer. <laughs> who uh represented president ortega that guy didn't after three days <laughs> that guy didn't really do his job so what do you have for us this is i'm so excited to hear a case told to me as well so yeah i wanted to look into some unsolved crimes and all that kind of stuff in nicaragua and so i found one that i knew absolutely nothing about until i was getting ready to do this podcast. And so I was, I'm actually kind of excited to learn about all this kind of stuff. But uh, the guy I'll be talking about is Enrique Bermudez. Um, this is like in the Cold War era when the United States was in a Cold War with the Soviet Union and Cuba and the countries that wanted socialism. And we, you know, the United States wanted representative democracy and capitalism. It's such an interesting time time period period. of history. Like, I don't know. I don't think we've covered Berlin yet, but when I was in Berlin, I toured one of their like Cold War fallout shelters. And it's such an eerie part of history, seeing like all these bunk beds basically that they just had underground in case, you know, nuclear fallout happened. Oh yeah. And I mean, during that time period, people were ready for it. I think it was in America. It was either in America or in Russia, but I'm pretty sure it was in America. The way you launch a nuclear warhead is like two people would have to insert their keys at the same time. And then if they both turn their key, then like a 10 second countdown starts and then the nuclear missile launches. Mm -hmm. But they made it two people so that one person couldn't, you know, just like go crazy and decide that they're going to bomb the world. Anyway, at one point during the Cold War, I think it was America. Two people had their key in the ignition to signal the launch and didn't turn. And so instead they pulled the key back out. But that would mean, you know, that the world was 10 seconds away from, yeah. from nuclear war. I don't know if we'd still yeah, be here. So like all of that. <laughs> yeah. All of that was going on and, and people were obviously high strung about what was going to happen. And so I had, I knew that, um, during the Cold War, like America was against uh, the Soviet Union and Cuba and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't really know how the war was being fought. And it turns out a lot of it was through um, a hot war in Nicaragua. Enrique Bermudez, he was a, a citizen of Nicaragua, went to a military academy, graduated in 1952, and then like rose the ranks until he was a lieutenant colonel. And then in 1979, there was a revolution in Nicaragua by a group called the Sandinistas. And they were like socialists. I think they were specifically Marxists, but they they created a socialist government in Nicaragua. And so Bermudez used like his military authority. He split from the government and created his own army. um, And they were called the Contra Movement. So there's the Sandinistas who are socialists and then the Contra movement um, who are anti-government and they're, they're trying to install like a democratic system for the government. So during this time, 
America supported Enrique Bermudez because they they acknowledged that you know whatever happens in Nicaragua between the socialists or um, like the people who want democracy is going to affect the entire hemisphere, like all of the Americas and stuff. Mm-hmm. So basically, America supported Enrique Bermudez and the Contra movement. And then the Soviet Union, Cuba, East Germany, and a couple other countries supported the Sandinistas and the socialist movement. So anyway, the war went on from uh, 1979 to 1990. And Bermudez was like the lead guy during the war. And apparently he had really, really tight affiliations with the United States, the Reagan administration, and the CIA and that kind of stuff during this time. And so that went on until 1990. And then in 1990, the Contras defeated the Sandinista regime. Um, And then the Sandinista regime was like, okay, you know, we'll have an election and all that kind of stuff. And then they lost in the election. And so things in Nicaragua started to move towards uh, democracy. That's kind of all the backstory. (laughs) And so here's where like the murder, the murder mystery comes in. And so Enrique Bermudez, the leader of the Contras, after the conflict ends in 1990, he kind of decides to retire from like his military career. And I'm sure he was still involved in some way because he was such a high profile figure, but he he mostly retires from everything he was doing. And in February of 1991, he had only lived as a normal citizen for four months uh, when he received a phone call at his sister's house. And so when he received the phone call, he told his sister that a friend had called him and told him that a U.S. ambassador wanted to meet him at a hotel. And so he went to the hotel to meet his friend and the ambassador, and they never showed up. And so he waited two hours and then decided to leave the hotel. And as he was leaving the hotel, he was gunned down in the parking lot. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so it was like a big setup after he had like after the conflict was over and all that kind of stuff and he had left there somebody set him up and sent him to that hotel and um the united states ambassador was like questioned in in the investigation and said he never knew anything about the meeting like had never heard anything Mm -hmm. wasn't contacted nothing like that and the the responsible party is still unknown about like who made that phone call Yeah, and so basically, investigators don't know if he had so much information on the United States government, like the CIA programs and the Reagan administration and stuff, if it was the United States that took him out, or if, you know, the Sandinista people who he was fighting against, if they came and were like seeking revenge, alongside all of that conflict, he was also believed to be involved in cocaine trafficking across the Honduras border uh, during, you know, the 1979 to 1990 conflict. And so it could be some sort of like drug lord issue type of thing that came up. Uh, But the bottom line is whoever made that phone call to his sister's house was somebody that he absolutely trusted because Mm -hmm. he went out to the hotel alone and was planning to meet his friend and um, the ambassador. And he never named who the friend was. He just said, I'm going to meet a friend. Well, yeah, even that they were close enough to him that they 
kind of knew what to say to get him to to leave yeah and I think it was like nine o'clock at night or something like that it was sort of later on in the evening but they knew that he would be at his sister's house and so they called there you know instead of calling him at his own residence yeah that's a good point yeah and so he trusted them enough that he went to the hotel by himself and then yeah they never showed up and then when he left the hotel he was gunned down that's interesting that they drew him out. If they knew where he was, why they didn't just get him as he was leaving his sisters. And so it probably could have ended up a lot worse than it was, where maybe, you know, they do storm into his sister's house and take out everybody. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, whoever did it, the, you know, it's, I think to me, it's clear that um, they planned it out pretty, pretty deeply. I wonder if he's as like, you know how we have a special day devoted to Martin Luther King and um, JF, I guess JFK doesn't have his own day, but how we've kind of tragically lost our own historic figures if he's kind of beloved in Nicaraguan history. Yeah. So I think, I think it was kind of split because, you know, there's obviously Nicaraguans who sided with the Sandinistas. Yeah. um, Two very clear divides. Nicaraguans who sided with him. I'm not sure that I should like portray him as some hero or anything in all of this mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. it, uh, he also, before the revolution in 1979, he was, while he was in the military and climbing the ranks and all that kind of stuff, he was serving under a dictator. Uh, I think his name is Solomonza or something like that um, or Samanza. But anyway, he was serving a dictator and he was known to be kind of like authoritarian in his like role of power, you know, Still, but he was, yeah, he was somebody that was so deeply involved with all these different groups that um, after he was assassinated, nobody knew who the responsible party was. <laughs> he had his hand in too many cookie jars, that no one could pinpoint. Yeah. And when I went to Nicaragua, I didn't know that um, Nicaragua was, was like that involved in the cold war but they were really one of the central aspects of the conflict. Allie and I talk about that, um, or I think we try to in each episode, that the hit, learning the history of the place you're at really brings the country alive or the city alive. And I wish I had known more about this when I actually went so that I could actually pay attention to all of that. But now it's just kind of, now <laughs> I only have my memory and what I'm reading on, on the internet. <laughs> Well, thanks for taking the time to research a story for us. Yeah, I hope they make a movie about it. I would watch that movie. Yeah, some kind of born legacy-ish film. Yeah. It's like the first action that popped in my mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of was the born movies. (laughs) The last thing I'll say is I I was glad that I could contribute an unsolved mystery to the conversation. Yes, we definitely love those on our our channel. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Travel with a Chance of Murder. This was our episode on Nicaragua. Thank you to Kennedy for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, it was super fun. And I, uh, I hope you guys learned something new. Tune in again as we travel to a new place around the globe. And have a great week. On behalf of the flight crew, thank you for flying with us and have a pleasant day.